Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 20. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image, and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man, with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the winepress, as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 to 20. A particular welcome to you if you're visiting, if you're wondering why we are going through this text. It is because we are in the midst of a series of the book of Revelation, and we find ourselves in the 14th chapter today. Lord, help us to think your thoughts. Everybody has a theology of the afterlife. Everybody has a theology of what should happen when things come to an end. Everybody, should, everybody has an idea of what they think should happen to other people in the world. If your theology is that I don't think there's anything, <laughs> then that is a theology of the afterlife. When it comes to having thoughts about the future, whose thoughts are you going to think? 
Do you know that your thoughts don't create the future? Do you know that your thoughts don't create the realities of the future? Whose thoughts are you going to think when it comes to the future? The Proverbs I've been thinking about a lot lately in chapter 28, verse 24, that says, A fool trusts in his own thoughts. And he who walks in wisdom finds a path of life. Augustine said centuries ago, he said, people think about the future more according to what they believe they would like to see than according to what the scriptures actually say. And so, Lord, help us to think your thoughts. Help us to humbly embrace and think the mind of God when it comes to things that are much higher than us and far beyond us. Remember that these thoughts about the future are for the church. Remember the church? These revelations, these, these, all of these vis visions, all of these things that John is describing are for the churches in Asia. And these are thoughts about the ungodly they are thoughts regarding the unrighteous, but they are thoughts about the ungodly for the church. John wants the church to think about these thoughts. It isn't a message for the ungodly. It's a, it's a message for the church. And so if, if you're an unbeliever here this morning, I want you to understand that there is no smugness in the heart and the minds of believers when they read texts like this that describe an eternal torment for those who reject the Lamb. There's no glee or, or delight in it saying, yeah, that, that, that's, that, that's for just a message for somebody else. I, I want you to know that if you're an unbeliever, that the message for you this morning is a message of hope. And that's our responsibility to make sure that you understand that if you're outside of Jesus, that God loves you and he has given Jesus to you in order to give you wisdom in this world. How to think in this world, how to live in this world, and yes, then how to think about the future. And there's a a tremendous scene change here, isn't there? And the book of Revelation is a lot about, about scene changes. It's showing us one scene and then showing us another scene. It has to do with the scene of the, the blessedness of those who follow the Lamb and also the scenes of those who do not follow the Lamb. And there has been a scene earlier in this chapter about the blessedness of those gospel-gripped ones, those that are gripped in the gospel. And the, the message of this text is, is don't let the gospel ever stop gripping you. Because if, if, if there's the gospel rejectors, there's gospel gripped ones and, and gospel rejectors. And that's what this particular vision has to do with, the gospel rejecting ones. And the, the message has a clear pastoral aim. I've been trying to emphasize our perception of the book as we've gone through it, that John is a pastor writing to churches with an instrument of grace for them in order that they would be able to endure, that they would be able to continue, as it says in our text, that they would be able to persevere. And the plain pastoral aim of, of this text, I believe, is very, very simple. It is, don't be envious of the wicked. The John's pastoral aim is that if you're wondering, why do we even have to think these thoughts? Why would John even describe these kinds of things? It's, a, it's an instrument of perseverance for the saints. 
of churches who are vulnerable, who need the mind of God about things that are hereafter in order that they would persevere. And the message is, don't envy the unrighteous. In Psalm 72, the psalmist says this, and it's, a, it's a, something that is, is common to human experience. It says, Lord, my foot almost slipped because I was envious of the wicked. And I look at them, and sometimes we look around at us too, and I think, well, and David says, I look at the wicked, and their, their bodies are sleek, and they're, they're full, and they're fat, and they don't seem to have any cares, and they, they puff at all of the concerns and the worries in this world. And, and Lord, here I am, following you, oppressed, persecuted. And I'm envious of their ease. I'm, I'm envious of the rest that they have in this world. And it's something that, that Christians, the churches, can be tempted to. Look at them. They, they got more expensive cars than I do. They got bigger boats than I do. They got a nicer house than I do. They don't have cancer like I do. They've never been widowed like I have. Look at them. And absolutely no regard for God. The message is spelled very plainly in the Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 4 says this, verse 14. Do not enter the paths of the wicked. See, it's dealing with temptation, right? Again, written to, to, to God's people. Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not walk in the way of the evil. And then avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass on. And John says, don't envy them. Don't be tempted. Yes, you have oppression in this world. And it seems like they have rest. But there is coming a grand reversal. And the grand reversal is this. That you will have eternal rest. And they will have eternal unrest. So here's the main point of the text, I think. If you don't get anything else this morning, I hope that this is what you'll be able to, to take home with you, at least, least to this. Do not be envious of beast followers. Beast followers is, is revelation vocabulary. It simply means earth dwellers, people who dwell on the earth. It means those who find their sense of worth, their sense of identity, their, their sense of significance, their sense of, of value, their sense of pleasure, their sense of joy, what they ultimately look to for meaning and purpose is found in this world, in the things of this world, in the pleasures of this world, in the temptations of this world, instead of in Christ. That's all it means to live in Babylon, to, to take the mark of, of the beast, to be an earth dweller, to to be a beast follower, all of those things, to belong to, to the harlot instead of the bride, all these vocabulary that, that the book of Revelation uses, that's, that, that's what it means. The lamb is very great. <laughs> it's what the church needs to know. It's what the church needs to live and be, be gripped by in its vision, not a, not a fear of things ahead, but a wisdom of things ahead. All of these signs and talk about the future, it isn't to, to, that we would be governed with fear, it's that we would be governed with wisdom. All the road signs they put out, you know, like only go this fast and watch out for cliffs and all of these things. It's not that you don't use those roads. It, no, I'm just, maybe I'll just stay home. No, it's not to fill us with fear, it's to fill us with wisdom about what is about what is really there. And this is what drives the church. The, the vision of the Lamb that is, is very great. His dominion is not small. His authority is, is not weak or an imitation. 
And in these verses, God's mind is, is made known to us. It's, a, it's such a profound thing. Whose thoughts are you going to think about the future? The very mind is, of God is made known, and it's made known to us specifically, and I'll explain this more in a minute, about a counterfeit trinity or, or an alternate trinity that is so pervasive in this world in order that we would walk with wisdom. That's, it's a long one, I know, but that's the main point. And it's very pastoral in its purpose. I hope you can see that. And its goal and in its aim. I've arranged my thoughts around these words. First of all, that judgment is announced. This is the first use of the word Babylon in the book of Revelation. And the word Babylon isn't even allowed into, into the idea or into the mind of, of the church without the word fallen being used twice before it. It's very, very significant. They won't even mention Babylon. So we say, fallen, fallen, which is a quote directly out of the book of Isaiah. Before it even comes on the scene, John wants you to know that it's doomed, that it will not last. And there's an, this announcement of, of judgment. Secondly, that there is consolation in this text for lamb followers and it has to do with the proximity of the lamb in the midst of all of it you might have noticed that that it says that all of this smoke going up then the lambs right there and the rest that is given to those who continue in obeying the commandments of god and possessing the faith of jesus there is wonderful consolation here and there is also a certainty about the future and a way to understand the present in light of the certain future that is described and it's described with two sickles. First of all, consider the announcement of judgment. There are three angels uh, followed by two sickles. Not motorcycles, those are good things, but this is just plain sickles. Very, very different thing. Why these numbers? Three is the number of the Trinity. Or three angels, three is the number of the Trinity, and it is a true Trinity, a Trinity that has an eternal gospel. It is eternal because it is an eternal Trinity, an eternal Father, eternal Son, and an eternal Spirit who gives eternal blessing and eternal unrest for those that accept the gospel and for those who reject the gospel, for those that are gospel-gripped and those that are gospel-rejecting. It is eternal. God himself is eternal. And his announcements are eternal. And it corresponds, the number three, to, to the eternal trinity, the true trinity. Number two, the two sickles, corresponds to the number of people that there are in this world. The number of groups of people that there are in this world. A harvest of the righteous and of the unrighteous. Let me show you how the three angels and significant part of the text describes the announcement of three angels. Let me show you how their pronouncement of judgment, which really is the, the, a, a death knell, that it corresponds to the influence and structures of the false trinity. 
Again, if you're just visiting us this morning, we've been going through the text, slowly working our way through. Those of you that have been a part of this series will understand by now the vocabulary when I say a false trinity, a counterfeit trinity, uh, an invasive presence in this world that has to do with the red dragon, the Satan himself, who doesn't handle culture, it seems, directly, but rather indirectly through a beast, just as the Father did not come to earth but sent the Son. So the, the red dragon has a beast, and it is a counterfeit with all of the things that, that the sun has and possesses, the beast, the, the water beast is there to, to imitate and to deceive by imitation. And also there was a land beast, you recall, of going through the text. There's a land beast whose entire purpose is to make the earth worship the water beast, uh, uh, an imitation of the work of the Holy Spirit on earth. So there is a, a true and eternal trinity, a father, son, and the spirit. And there is a counterfeit trinity in this world. That's something that I don't know. It's something that I have no knowledge of unless God gives me his mind on it. And God has given us his mind on that very thing. And also about the imitation of the work of Satan is an imitation of God. Not an outright denial of God, but an imitation of God, of a substitute. Here, you don't want to worship the Father who made the earth and the land and sea and all that is in it. You don't want to submit to that authority. Well, here's an alternate. Find your purpose and your identity in this. You don't want to belong to the society of the church. You don't want to be the pure and spotless bride of Jesus. You don't want to labor in this world following Christ. Well, here is an alternative. It's called Babylon. You want to worship the God who is, is the true God? Well, well, here is an alternative. Worship whatever you want. <laughs> Set it up, call it a God. And so there is a correspondence in these three angel proclamations, announcements of judgment of the counterfeit deity with the true and eternal deity. And God, through these three announcements of the angels, wants the church to understand this. He wants you to, to picture something in your mind. Does God care? <laughs> does, does, does God, like the psalmist says of, of the wicked, say, does, does, does God just not see? Does, does he not know? And what John wants the church to understand is that don't be tempted by it because God will systematically and very thoroughly scrub this world of that very invasive, invasive presence of the false trinity. It is an invasive presence that, that we will never be able to be rid of in this world. It's an invasive presence that we will have vocationally all of our lives to resist the temptation, to be deliberate and intentional about following the Lamb, not defiling ourselves with the things in this world, but being pure to Him. But God will. Have you ever had a, something invasive in your body that, you know, you can't, you can't just cut it out? It's, it's, it's all through. You ever had something invasive in your yard? You should see my wife when she sees morning glory. It's, it's a weed, and she goes like, oh, oh, no. She very lovingly, tenderly gets out her rubber gloves 
and very thoughtfully gets out a toothbrush and very clearly gets a weed killer and painstakingly paints every single leaf all the way down the vine because she knows she'll never get rid of it. She'll probably live with it in her garden forever, but she's trying. She's trying. Imagine if you were away for a few months and you came home from Arizona. Some of you get to do that. And you came home and there had been rats living in your kitchen for a few weeks or a few months, munching on your, your, your cereal and, and uh, making nests in your flour and living in your pots. And your husband said, well, that's okay. I got an air freshener here. We'll, we'll just... We'll just We'll just freshen the place up. You would, <laughs> you would say, no, you would, you would empty every single pot. You would take every single thing out into your yard and you would systematically clean every, every, everything that you think might have been infected. That's, that's a picture of what the angels announce about an invasive presence that the church will always resist and always have pressure against us, but will never be able to finally thwart and be rid of in this world. It will only actually, in fact, grow and increase in strength. But don't be tempted by it. And it is very real. An alternate reality. An alternate society. An alternate worship. But there is an eternal trinity that is not an imposter, is not a counterfeit, a father who really did make the earth and the land and the sea and all that is in it, who we really do find our identity and our purpose and our wisdom for living in this world. There is a son who really has come into this world to create a society, to create actually a living building, a city of the, of the people of God, and the alternate to that, of course, is the harlot that offers its services. The harlot is called Babylon that offers its services as an alternate to people who are tempted not to remain pure for their bridegroom. So why do we face so much seduction in this world? Do you ever wonder why the world is so, so sensual? <laughs> like, why does, why does sensuality have to be attached to everything? Why does, why does Google mine my phone and my computer in order to try to put images of things that, that it, I might want to buy? It is the sun that the eternal gospel proclaims a union with, a society, a city, a people, that will endure forever with rest. And it is the spirit that the gospel proclaims that enables us to worship the true and living God. So don't drink the wine. <laughs> don't drink the wine. It, it, it's a phrase that we're familiar with, but it, it comes right out of the scriptures. Don't, don't, don't imbibe on the idea that these worldly structures of pleasure will endure because the world's intoxicated on it. Literally drunk, John says. They're, they're, they're drunk on the idea. I, and I, I, I mind these words from Psalm chapter 10 that I think are good descriptions of what the world is drunk on. And that the wicked says in his heart, I shall not be moved. I shall not face adversity throughout all generations. He says in his heart that God is forgotten. He's hidden his face. He'll never see. And says they renounce God and say in their hearts, no one will call to account. 
as Laurie read earlier from Psalm 37. Don't be envious of the wicked. And it says later in that Psalm, in just a little while. <laughs> Those of you that have grandchildren use that phrase a lot. In just a little while. <laughs> and your little while seems to them like an eternity. And so for us, God's in a little while seems like an eternity. But the church needs to know that it is indeed in just a little while. The wicked will be no more. Because you see, God cares. God actually does care about his glory. He is jealous of his glory of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And there's some consolation here also. But in verse 10, it says this. It says that they're, they're speaks of the cup of his anger being tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. In the midst of my own questionings about these images and his thoughts and my own perplexity, there is a place here where my soul finds a place to dwell and to look upon and to be consoled. And it is this, is that in the midst of, of all of it, in, in the midst of a, of a scene of, and it is, it's a scene of, of contrast, of eternal rest on the one hand and eternal unrest on the other hand, that in the midst of it all, that it is, it is witnessed by the holiness of heaven. And the angels are there, the holy angels, it says, and also the crown jewel of heaven, the lamb, there, looking upon it. And it gives me pause, and I think it should give each one of us pause. And all of the thoughts that, that we are tempted to immediately have triggered in our minds with the images that are, are described in, in the text itself, it, it should give us pause that, that in the midst of it all, there is the Holy One of Heaven, the Lamb, looking upon it. And it should give me some wisdom to defer to the Lamb about the wisdom of all of this, about the justice of all of this, about the holiness of all of this, which I think really deference to the lamb is what lamb following is actually is all about. But let me just say something that's been in my own soul and my own Christian life experience when thinking about the eternal nature of, of unrest, of the smoke that ascends to God forever. I think what drives a lot of thinking, it's driven my thinking at times. Thinking about the future, it's a certain fear that we as God's people will live in eternity with a sense of injustice in us. If you examine some of the objections, some of the, no, nah, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to go a different path. I'm not comfortable with those thoughts. If you examine them, what, what's often at their, or what's often at, at the, our, our thinking is, it, it's basically self-centered, that we're going to be in heaven and we're somehow going to be made uncomfortable by with something that, that we are conscious of that is outside of the eternal blessedness that we are experiencing. As if we will have to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, I love being with you, but I'm not comfortable being here with, with that eternal exhibition of God's judgment here. And 
What, what, what another contrast that is in the book of Revelation, this, this smoke that, that is ascending. Again, John is, is using not just pictures, but, but pictures of contrast. And all of these pictures are meant to contrast pictures about ourselves and about, about lamb followers. And the, the contrast between the lamb followers and the beast followers here is that the lamb followers send something ascending to the nostrils of God. The entire time that we live on this earth and it is a, a, a pleasing aroma to God. It is, the, it is the prayers of the saints. And we're given that picture about what is ascending to God from the earth. It's, it's, it's pleasing to God. It's ascending to God continually. And it's aroma of the prayers of the saints. And this is the contrasting picture of something else that, that ascends into the presence of of God and it is smoke and the lamb is there the lamb is witness I believe a witness that there is no cruelty in judgment because you see that's what we're afraid of we're gonna gonna be in heaven afraid that there's something cruel going on but the lamb is looking on cruelty is the infliction of harm unjustly that's what cruelty is I've been cruel to things in my life. It's awful. Cruelty is the infliction of harm unjustly. God's judgment is holy. That word in and of itself is so significant. Approved, witnessed by the whole, all the holy, and in fact, the holy one of heaven. There's a purity. His wisdom is holy. It is wise. Wiser than us. So much wiser than us. The Apostle Paul says, we see now in a glass darkly. There's wisdom here. That's why Habakkuk says, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. We have to trust the word of God that it is both holy, that it is a wisdom that transcends us, and that it is just. It is justice. It is the consequences of people's own choices that are eternal in nature because it is against an eternal being. Sin is eternal in its consequences because it's against a being that is eternal and infinite. I know what's out there. I know exactly what I'm saying. I know what's on the internet. Believe me, I know. Whose thoughts are you going to think? How could God be called love and punish infinitely for something that is finite in time? Are you infinite in your wisdom? Are you God? I'm not God. Jesus describes the death of a rich man who had oppressed Lazarus, a poor man named Lazarus, and the rich man in a place of suffering Jesus described as able to communicate with heaven. And in his words to God, there is no sense of injustice. It's an interesting little anecdote in the Gospels that's often pointed out. Well, why did you put me here? I haven't done anything wrong. Rather, it's a, please go tell my brothers in order that they would not be where I am. See, the gospel saves. You know that, that, that simple word? We use it all the time. Are you saved? 
Well, saved from what? How would you answer that question? What are you saved from? Saved from your problems? <laughs> this is another challenge that goes really, really deep into the Christian evangelical heart. Not only uncomfortable with some of the thoughts we have about the future, but uncomfortable with even living now with the idea that God has loved me by saving me from wrath. We don't want to be loved that way. But the Bible's clear that's exactly what the gospel is. God has saved us. He has loved us not little. He has loved us much. And this is a message for the church. Why think on these things? Why even bring them up? Well, we value salvation little if we think lightly of judgment. The other consolation is the promise of rest, as I've mentioned here already. And also, it's a great contrast. You see, Babylon the harlot offers those services of rest. It's temporary, but it is rest. It's, you know what? You don't need to obey the commandments of God. Take a break, man. Just rest. It's burdensome. It's oppressive. Can't you see, Can't you see that, that you don't need to live that way? The faith in Jesus, believing that, that, that Jesus alone can keep us safe in death. That's what the faith of Jesus is. But real rest is with the Lamb followers. But it's not yet. <laughs> it's not yet. Yes, there's a rest from, from so many things. As the scripture was read this morning, that Jesus says, my, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I offer you rest. Yes, you know what? That's because it actually is rest to obey God and follow God. But there is no rest for the godly in this world when it comes to resisting temptation. There's a constant pressure. There's a constant need to lay hold of the life of of loving God, which is the sum of the commandments of God. There's a constant need, a constant pressure to trust in Jesus that he would be our significant, our worth, and our identity our sense of pleasure. And so, and so don't give up. Paul says at the end of the resurrection chapter in 1 Corinthians 15, it's not in vain. What you do is not in vain. Don't give up. And John says, interestingly, he says, and your, your deeds will follow you in death. Fascinating phrase. Very deliberately, not said that our deeds would proceed us into heaven. <laughs> Remember the story in Genesis where Esau is appro- approaching Jacob and Jacob is all worried and he sends all kinds of stuff on ahead. He says, yeah, take my goats, take my, take my sheep, take my camels, take all, and he sends all of this stuff on ahead in order to appease. That's how, not how we enter heaven. There's nothing that, that we send ahead of us in our works to, to somehow gain access and entrance into heaven except faith in Christ. It is the only door. It is the only way. But our works aren't for nothing. What a marvelous picture this is of the afterlife. Of, of, and well, what's that behind you there? What is that? What's following you? What, what's coming in behind? Well, what is it? <laughs> that's a good question, isn't it? What is that that's following in behind you? It's the glory that God will assemble around his throne of a people that have kept themselves pure that have laid the commandments before them in this world, that love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Trusted in Jesus alone that he can keep them safe even in death. 
And they follow them into heaven. And God, with the harvest, assembles it before the throne of God as a part of the glory of the eternal, triune, real trinity. It's a wonderful picture. Finally, the, the future is certain. The future is made certain. And what is announced by the angels is implemented by, by sickles. This is right out of the book of Joel. Again, John is not using code with the church. He's not trying to obscure the message. I could, I could give you 20 different Old Testament texts where all the vocabulary of this particular chapter comes directly out of the Old Testament. John is using the vocabulary not to obscure, but to make plain that there would be absolutely no question exactly what it is that he's talking about. And the sickles comes right out of, out of the minor prophet Joel. And the two sickles again offer another great contrast. Those safely brought into the city. The text ends described, the text ends, the chapter ends. Those that are described who are safe inside the city and those who are outside of the city through the two different harvests. One are reaped to be brought safely inside. That's already been depicted earlier in the chapter. Uh, verse 1 of this particular chapter, they're, they're in Mount Zion. And they're celebrating and they have a song to sing. But there are another harvest to those that are outside the city. The two sickles aren't two separate events in time, but they are two separate groups that are harvested. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 13 when he described the parable of the weeds that are sown in amongst the wheat. And he says, let them grow together. Let them ripen together. And the holy angels will come and will harvest the two different things that are there. And the crown that is on the Son of Man is Jesus. And the crown is the real deal. And the, the, the significance of that is that there has been imitation crowns. The red dragon wearing crowns. And the, the, the point for the church is that there is a crown that is the real deal. It is not an imitation crown. It is real sovereignty. It is real authority. One in, in whose hands the future is actually held. Jesus came as the gospel sower. Now he will come as the gospel reaper. And he will harvest the whole earth. And interestingly, when he is told from the, from the, from the temple, from the presence of God, an angel goes out and, and says, now, and Jesus said that, didn't he? He says, I, even the Son of Man does not know the day or the hour. Only the Father in heaven. And there will be a harvest. He will harvest the whole earth when he is told to. And the point is very simple, I think, in this last paragraph. That the world is ripening. We live in a world that is ripening. And it's a lot going on in the world today. A lot of Christians watching headlines and news and, and all kinds of things. I, I don't watch the, the news in, in detail. And all, all kinds of, of thoughts are being put into our head about, about what to think about the world. And they say, well, the world is... How would you finish that sentence? The world is ripening for the harvest. And it's interesting, through the Old Testament, a lot of the feasts had to do with the harvest. Next time you see a harvest, just think about this simple simple profound thing that comes comes out of agriculture that god controls the harvest very profound i know but but just just let me pause think about it we're going to harvest apples in our house soon and we don't say well i'm going to harvest now no we recognize now is the time to harvest we don't determine the time of the harvest 
<laughs> and all of the feasts of Israel was a, an acknowledgement of that, that they would celebrate at the harvest, God of the harvest. God is the one who determines the seasons. He brings the harvest. The farmer doesn't say, I'm going to harvest now. <laughs> the, the farmer looks out and says, oh, the harvest is now. And there will be a harvest. The world itself is ripening for a final harvest. Harvest. The question is, which, in which way are you ripening? <laughs> my soul is ripening. My mind is ripening. My, my life is ripening. My household is ripening. Everything that I touch and feel, all, everything about me is ripening for something. Ripening for being brought into the city safely, where one who has already been trampled outside of the city, one who has already been outside of the city bearing the fury of God's wrath. Or the other ripening is to, to face God's holy fury without a substitute. It's a profound thing to think about every soul that we meet, every soul that we speak to is in some way ripening. And, and the imperative of sowing gospel seeds. To sow gospel seeds all of the time. This is the, the vocation of the church, the, 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 the life of the church, to sow gospel seeds that can ripen for the harvest that is safe inside the city. In conclusion, let me just emphasize again that the words are intended as an instrument of perseverance. Do you know what an instrument is? Something you pick up and use. Revelation is an instrument, something that God has picked up and used for our perseverance, for our endurance, to enlarge our vision of Jesus. How big is he? How great is he? How much can I trust in him? You know that we will never be put to shame? You can never trust too much in Jesus? There's never any greatness that you can attribute to the Lord for which on the final day you will be ashamed of. As the psalmist prays, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. I trust in you alone. There will be no shame for that kind of trust. To enlarge our vision of Jesus and show us the eternal wisdom. The wisdom and, and, and where there's wisdom, there is also joy and thanksgiving in trusting him and that our rest is not here. Our rest is eternal. I've used that little verse in here, here so many times at funerals of the blessedness of those who die in the Lord and then to look around those, those that are still living and say your rest hasn't begun. Don't give up. Paul says we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Would you please pray with me? Lord, guide our thoughts in wisdom, I pray. And I pray that as you fashion an instrument, as you employ an instrument in the midst of the seven churches, Lord, that we would also be gathered in the wisdom of your mind, not to question it, to put you on, 
on the dock to say, why have you said thus? But to trust you, to know that you are great, I pray. Fill us with love, I pray, for all of those who do not yet know you. May we desire and long and think of it constantly, the desire in our hearts for them to know such a great lamb, I pray. And may the true eternal spirit not be taken from us, nor the Son, nor the Father, in order that we worship you. For Jesus' sake I pray, amen.